Hello, and welcome to Truth For Today with Terry Fant. And yes, I'm your host, Terry Fant. In a world full of confusion that leads to chaos, the answer for clarity is the absolute truth of God's Word. It has stood the test of time. I hope you'll listen to this message with an open heart and that God would speak to you one-on-one through it. If you're ever in the Florence, Mississippi area, then we would love for you to join us for live worship. Please feel free to reach out to me at terryfant at icloud.com. May the Lord bless you as he draws, shapes, and instructs you. Now, let's listen to today's message. Amen. He is worthy to be praised this morning. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you back to the Gospel of Luke, uh, as we were in last week, except this week in chapter 16. So the Gospel according to Luke, chapter number 16. Wow, a lot of faces came in in the last moments. You know, I always, I'm up here a few minutes before time, and I look around, I'm like, oh, where are the people at? And I know where you are. You were parking. You're trying to get in the parking lot and out of the parking lot. And uh, I want to say to you this, thank you for being a patient people. I think it's good for us to be reminded sometimes that our God is not, he never declared himself to be a God of convenience. And so, hey, the good news this morning, you had all kind of doors to choose from, didn't you? Right? You had extra doors on parts of the building you didn't even know were there. And so, uh, God continues to show us favor in saving souls and then providing space for us, to, for other souls to be saved, equipped, and disciples to be made. And so, I want to just give him praise this morning. He's so good and unimaginably kind and powerful. I believe he's going to do it again this morning. So again, Luke chapter number 16, I'm going to preach on one of our favorite topics. And uh, the topics really is the love of God. But the funny thing is, you're going to think it's a message on hell. And uh, (laughs) I love that right there. You're like, what? What did he say? Did he just cuss? No, I'm talking about a place. All right. (laughs) So (laughs) we're settling in this morning. And uh, interestingly enough, studies will show that Uh, a high percentage of people believe in a place called heaven. Somewhere in the 80 percentile of people in the world today believe in a place called heaven. But interestingly enough, less than 50% of people uh, polled in the world today believed in a place called hell. And isn't it interesting that both of those are told to us from the same source? And we only have any information of either one or the other from the same source. And yet, we people, human beings, we are uh, selective in what we like to hear. Tina says, sometimes I have selective hearing. And so I believe we have selective believing as well. And so this morning, interestingly enough, when you look at Jesus' teachings, you'll find that he taught almost twice as often about hell as he did about heaven. Now, uh, as I begin this message, I don't want you to think this is a message about hell, although we'll, we will identify some things about hell. The message today is about the rescue and the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news today? But let me just say this to you. You'll never understand the goodness of the good news until you understand the badness of the bad news, right? And so we don't know it's good news unless we have something to compare it to and understand it by. So I want to give you a little recap from last week. Why? Because it plays into this week. I always want you to be a people who know the current context of the passage we're looking at. So if you're our guest, every week I do this. I give a little background to kind of, we start wide and we work narrow to the passage we're in. Here's why. Because we can take a passage in the Scripture, a verse in the Scripture, and make it say anything we want to. But we can't if we follow the context of what's going on. Does that make sense to you? Give me a little head nod. So I want you to be a people who are informed, okay? So last week we saw this, this gospel according to Luke written by a man who was a physician by trade. So you'll notice in his writings, he takes care of details. Isn't that what doctors do? And so he is very detail-oriented. He's written this letter for the purpose of speaking to a young a man by the name of Theophilus. And the purpose of the gospel that was written down according to Luke was to prove to excellent Theophilus that what, Je- what he had heard about Jesus... Uh, The life, the times, the teachings, the death, the resurrection about Jesus were absolutely true, okay? Now, in chapter 15 and 16, Jesus is telling parables. Anybody know what a parable is? A parable is an earthly story that has heavenly meaning. If you're our guest, you need to know that. Jesus would use parables as a way to teach crowds. He would come up with a story that would represent what he was trying to teach to his audience. That makes sense to you? Okay, and by the way, he was a master teacher. And so he's got a crowd of people. Now, it starts in chapter 15, and Jesus is, the word says he's receiving sinners and eating with them. Now, the word receive there means to eagerly await their return, their coming. And the Pharisees are a group of people who are steeped in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, they've memorized the first five books of the Bible. Can you imagine that? 
And if you saw a Pharisee out in Florence, Richland, Madison, wherever you're from, and you saw them out in town, you'd say, by the way they lived in front of you, you say, it's the most godly, woman, godly man rather I've ever met in my life. Because they, were they wanted the law to be everything they did in their life to at least look like they were living the law, okay? You'll find that Jesus and the Pharisees were always at odds. Here's why. Jesus represented that the most common of sinners, such as I, could be made right with God, not by an old covenant system, not by uh, righteous deeds of me living perfectly, but simply by surrendering in humility and trusting that Jesus died for me and rose again and inviting him to be the Lord of my life, I could be made right with God, just as right as any religious person that ever has been. Does that make sense to you? So they hated him. They were always at odds with each other, okay? <clears throat> now, in the crowd, what it says in chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 15, it says that they were angry with Jesus because he was receiving sinners. So he tells them in chapter 15 three parables that helps them understand or He's attempting to help them understand about how heaven sees what they're mad about. What are they mad about? He's receiving sinners. So what Jesus does, he tells them three parables about things that were lost and were found. The first parable dealt with one of the 100 sheep that was lost, right? And the, he leaves the 99, goes and gets it, brings it home, and they celebrate, all right? The lost sheep's found, they have a celebration. Jesus says, I'm telling you a story to help you guys understand what you're mad about, heaven celebrates. Second parable he gives is of the lost coin, you remember? There's a lady, she's lost one of her coins, so what she does, she lights a light, she gets her broom out, she, it's very important to her, she's sweeping the house, for, and she finds it. Don't you love when you find something you've lost? And she calls her neighbors and says, let's rejoice and celebrate. What's Jesus saying? He's saying to this group of people, what you're angry about, heaven celebrates. And the third one is about a son that was lost, well, two sons that are lost. One's lost in a far-off country pig pen, one's lost in the pig pen of the front porch in his anger, because the younger son comes home and receives grace, and he's not about that. He's the representative of the Pharisee in that parable. Well, you fast forward a little bit, and Jesus tells another parable about an unjust steward. I'm going to skip past that one and pick up today. Uh, but I want you to notice a verse in verse 14 before we move into today's passage. I'm going to read it for you, okay? Just listen with me. This is chapter 16, verse 14. You need to know this so the rest will make sense. Now, uh, chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees, okay... Who were, now this is the same scene, he's just telling all these parables, but we have, Luke records a detail that we need to know to understand what we're about to look at, okay? Now the Pharisees, who were, y'all help me, lovers of money, isn't that interesting? Because today's parable is going to deal with that, okay? The Pharisees who were lovers of money, so Jesus is telling these parables to try and turn their heart toward him, okay, for them to see that heaven rejoices what they're mad about. For, for them to see that in the parable of the loving father, that the, the, the son that's out on the porch, he, the father went to him and invited him in too. So they've been invited in too. But they're angry, okay? And what, he, what it says, read with me verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided. Now did anybody use that word derided this week? No. And so what you'll find out, the Greek word there means to thumb their noses up at him. Can you see it? They're angry because he's people who are in whose whose sin is very observable, prostitutes and tax collectors and and, and drug addicts. They, they was very observable. They were coming to sit down with Jesus, and he was teaching them that they had hope in him. And the other group of people, the Pharisees, were angry at that. So Jesus takes time to tell them some stories to help them see their error, but they won't see the error. Instead, they love money. And as he's telling them these parables, they're not getting, their heart's not being softened, but they're thumbing their nose up at his offer. Now, who is, the, 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 the idea of the word thumbing their nose up derided means to look down on him uh, with, with um, anger or bitterness in their heart, okay? So now let's pick up and see what he's about to say to them. Because I don't know about you guys, right about now, I'd be like, okay, you know what? Forget it, never mind. But Jesus tells one more parable in this series of dealing with this audience, this particular audience, and it is very pointed. It is very, uh, let me just say that Jesus uses some words that we're gonna find out really his intent was to stir their emotions. And I pray that your emotions also would be stirred today. Now sometimes you'll hear people say, I'm not doing anything to mess with emotions. I don't want you to make an emotional decision, to which I say is hogwash. Who gave you your emotions? God did. Your emotions can help you in situations. Come on, somebody. 
And so today, I pray God would help me. I want to make an attempt to make this same offer to the crowd here that Jesus made to the crowd there. So with no more ado, if you would stand to your feet now in honor of reading God's word. And let's pick up in verse number 19. Luke 16, verse number 19. Now, let me ask a question quickly. Uh, do you feel like you're kind of clued into what's going on? Okay, good. I wanted to put you in the scene before we look at what his, what his last parable to them is, okay? Back in verse number 19. Here we go. There was, now remember, we just said they're lovers of, and they thumb their nose up at him. So he tells them one more, one more parable. There was a certain rich man, oh, we're dealing with money. Isn't that interesting? Okay, why? Because Jesus sees into the heart. Uh, now, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and, and fared sumptuously every day. But there was also a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his, his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried, and this is what he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are, help me, tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. But then he said back, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one would go from them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said back to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pause for a brief word of prayer. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment? Father, I pray this morning that all of our preconceived notions would be washed away right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that, Lord, we'd all find ourselves like little children sitting at a table listening for a word from our daddy. And God, I thank you today that you love mankind enough that no one has to be separated from you for eternity. No one. I thank you today that your word declares the, de the, the hell was made for the devil and his angels and that you've spared no cost to purchase the freedom, the full pardon, and the rescue of whosoever will call upon your name. So today I pray you'd help me to preach with boldness and clarity and yet with great grace. And Father, at the same time, as you preach through me, proving that you can use anybody, anywhere, anytime. I pray also, O oh God, that you would tune our hearts to your voice. I pray you chase the birds away that want to steal away the seed from our hearts. I pray our hearts would be good soil conditioned to receive the seed that it would produce fruit in our lives. And so, Lord, now we humble ourselves before you and we listen. Please hold our attention in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Also, quickly, do something for me. Uh, grab your phone. Would you do that real quick? Grab your phone. And, uh, and grab your phone. I usually do this at the beginning, and I, and I didn't, but grab your phone. Hey, I noticed on my phone a minute ago, my phone's never on ring. I looked at my phone. It was on ring. I was like, boy, wouldn't that have been something if I'd have been preaching right there, there and that thing would have dinged or went off over there? And so uh, if you will, look on your phone and go ahead and do that. Now, if you don't, I'm telling you, when that thing goes off, you're gonna, it's going to be a spectacle right there in your neighborhood. So turn the volume off on your ringer, if you would. And then there's something else that I ask you to do. I got a report this week from somebody who's life was changed because somebody in here shared the service. And so would you take just a minute, if you're on social media, turn the volume down so we don't hear my voice all over the place, right? Um, but if you would, go on social media and share our service, share our worship time. Um, you have no idea the people in your friends, friends, friends who will hear. Uh, again, I got another report this week of somebody's life who was changed because one of their friends shared the service and their life is forever changed by Jesus now. So please don't miss that opportunity to be a missionary in your chair, okay? Now let's rewind back to the beginning. The title of our message today is, There is But One Way Home. One Way Home. A number of years ago, I remember watching an interview with uh, one of Mississippi's own Oprah Winfrey. Any of y'all familiar with that name? 
A couple of y'all, okay. And uh, I remember when she was younger talking about her testimony of when she put her faith in Jesus and was born again. And that was a number, number of years ago. But over time, uh, she said in this interview, and even at a show that was recorded live, uh, she said that she no longer believed that Jesus Christ was the only way to God. And I remember hearing that and shuddering to think that, that now this lady who is a professing follower of Christ is now teaching the doctrine of demons because any other avenue that is claims to bring you right with God is, in fact, a doctrine of demons and will leave you lost and damned and separated from God forever. And so it's no small matter for anyone ever to say there are any other roads or that all roads lead home, but there's only one way, home. And his name, if you know it, say with me, is Jesus, the sweetest name I know. It's not a list of rules and do's and don'ts. It's not a religion. It's not a church attendance. All, uh, all no. It's a personal relationship with a personal Savior who came down to this earth and died a criminal's death that I deserved, and you did too, and rose victorious over the grave. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. There's but one way. Now, remember the audience. There was a group thought they were going to get to heaven because they were Abraham's descendants, the Pharisees, and they were steeped in tradition. And hey, by the way, they could quote the first five books of the Bible. That's pretty impressive, right? Surely that'll gain you access into heaven. And so they had the idea they were self-righteous and right with God. But then you have a group of people who were sinners, who were outcasts, who were less than, whose life had been turned upside down because of their own decisions, and they were coming to find hope in Jesus Christ. So Jesus tells this last parable. Now remember, the Pharisees were lovers of money, and they had thumbed their noses at him, right? Turned their noses up at the notion that Jesus said they could come to him and be saved, all right? So the main idea of the text simply is this. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Jesus is. Now you say, where do you get that in there? Hang on. I'm going to explain it as we go along, okay? Now, first of all, in your notes, I want you to write down number one, and I want to look at it in verses 19 to 21. Write this down. The first scene of the parable is a stark contrast of life, okay? So write that down in your notes, a stark contrast of life. Anywhere, oftentimes in the Scripture, when you see things like but, uh, there's going to be a contrast of things, all right? So in this first parable, or this last parable, first part of it, Jesus compares two things. What does he compare? He compares a rich life and... A poor, come on now, a poor life, uh, a, a life that had anything he wanted to a life that had nothing that he needed, right? So let's talk a little bit about this contrast. First of all, in verse number 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple. Now, remember the audience that Jesus is talking to, he, he didn't have to say there was a certain uh, rich man, but he didn't just say that he was rich and he, and he kept that to himself, okay? Now, now let me explain what I'm saying here. This teaching in this parable is not that wealth is inherently evil. Y'all with me? I didn't say the main idea of this passage is wealth is evil, okay? Matter of fact, this statement is false. Money is the root of all evil. That's false. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. You got to have money. Money's neutral. It doesn't have, depends on what you use it for and what you're, you're tracking with me. So, Jesus didn't say there was a rich man. He said there was a rich man who dressed in purple. Oh, here lies the key. So, what we find about Jesus' day and time is that only royalty generally wore clothes that were purple in color. Why? The dye purple was something that was very expensive to behold and to take and take part of. So what would happen is oftentimes only those who were in royalty could afford to wear things that were purple. It was an outward expression that they were royalty. Matter of fact, royalty of Jesus' day were oftentimes referred to as people of the purple. And it was so associated with kings uh, that they were one and the same. Now, is it interesting? The rich man was not a king, but he dressed like one. He was the guy who wore a Rolex on both arms. Huh? Drove up in the Lamborghini, wanted everybody to know that he had more money than he knew what to do with, more money than sense. And so he's doing whatever he wants, purchasing anything he wants. Can you imagine going to any store anywhere in the world and getting whatever you wanted? Some of y'all smiling pretty big out there, daydreaming about things, aren't you, huh? And so we think about this comparing lifestyle. So the first one is a very rich life, okay? Now, read a little further. But it's not just a rich life that was used for the things of God. It was a rich life that was used for the things of this man's heart. You tracking with me? Read along in verse number 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. 
But that's not the only expression of wealth in his life. The word says he fared sumptuously every day. Now, there's a Greek word there, fared sumptuously. We read down, we think, what in heaven's name does that mean? It means not only did he dress like a king, he ate like a king. This fared sumptuously is a word that means there were festivals that he had constantly, and he wasn't eating uh, Vienna sausages. Come on, somebody. Uh, spam wasn't the meal of the day. And y'all still all right out there? And so this man dressed like a king, but he ain't like a king. So he had, this is the guy when you were in town, you wanted to get invited to his parties, man, because they had a buffet and there was no limit. You had prime rib and ribeye and filet and snow crab. And I don't know why I use food as an example, because some of y'all are like, just checked out on me not to return until we say amen. But this man's life, you see, was extravagant. His wealth was used on himself and himself only, all right? So he dresses in fine. He wants everybody to notice he, he ought to be royalty, though he's not. And he eats like a king as well. Now let's contrast this life to the other, okay? But this is the contrast moment. There was a certain, and this guy was a beggar. Now, now have you ever been in a place in your life when you had to beg? Um, most likely, uh, in the, the, the general population of us would have to go way back to when we were little, and we were on the cereal aisle. Or, or like in the Christmas story, where there was a BB gun that we wanted, right? And we'd beg, right? You remember begging mom and dad for something? But some of us have, have lived life a little bit further down the road, and based on circumstances and situations, we've gotten to a place where we had to, you know, you've had to beg for food. And I, I don't believe there's a person among us who enjoys begging, now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I, you don't know so-and-so. And, man, they, they don't have no problem begging. Yeah, but what I know is somewhere along the journey of life, they had to humble themselves and ask for the first time. Now, maybe, maybe they went down the wrong road after, but I'm telling you that first time, those first times were not something they were aiming at as a child for a goal in their life. And so this man, for whatever the circumstances, is a beggar. He has to rely on the generosity of others in order to be sustained. Now, we know he's not a leprous. He's not lepery. Or he doesn't have leprosy because he's begging publicly, and they, they weren't allowed to do that. Okay, so let's just pick back up in the text. What else does it say about him in verse number 20? Uh, there was a certain beggar whose name was Lazarus. Now, isn't it interesting? As Jesus is telling the story, the Pharisees are the rich man. Y'all tracking with me? Because they were lovers of money. We just found that out. But now we have, on the contrast, the guy in the story that these people would look down on. They would, oh watch, thumb their nose at him. Mm. When they're hearing Jesus talk about this guy that has sores on him and that dogs are licking, can't you just see the Pharisees going like, mm, let's just talk about something else. I don't want to talk about that. That's nasty. We don't like to even mention those kind of unmentionable things. Because they were proper and wealthy and and up to do, uppity to do. And so Jesus paints the picture of this man. But isn't it interesting, of the two in the story, as a matter of fact, all of the parables that Jesus told, he's the only one that had a name. Lazarus. You see, the, the millionaire, the rich man, he was just, you know, run of the mill, one of a million. He just was some rich guy. But Lazarus had a name. And Lazarus' name, translated Eleazar, means he whom God has helped. Now, interesting, when he's telling the story, can't you imagine, this Pharisee audience, they believed that when people were rich, they were the people that God favored. The, 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 not just the Pharisees, but the people of Jesus' day had the idea that if someone was financially well-off, that they were blessed of God, and they were God's people, and they were special. It's why when Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to be into the kingdom of heaven, and it's why the disciples went, what? Well, then who can be saved, you see? They thought that the favor of God was in the finance. Listen to me. Never believe that your finances are an indicator that you are, in fact, God's child. So now, they have all that they can spend, but they have this one guy who is a beggar, but he is called the one who's helped by God. Isn't that interesting? Don't you know they're like, I don't like this story. <laughs> Those Pharisees are like, man, you're, you're just trying to tick us off. Read a little further, all right? So it says that Lazarus, uh, he was a beggar, full of sores, who was laid at the rich man's 
gate. Now, the word for gate here is not a common term for gate. By the way, New Testament written mainly in Koine Greek, the common Greek, not the classical Greek, but the term here for gate is not like just a common gate at the end of a driveway. It's like the gate entrance to a palace. And so this man has a palace on the hill. He's got a big, huge ornamental gate. And here is Lazarus laid there. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us he didn't have the power to take himself there. Somebody places him, maybe daily, at the gate of the rich man. And he is a beggar, so he's without, but also his body is stricken with sores. That's just nasty to think about, isn't it? How much more to think about Spot coming across the, the field there and beginning to lick his wounds. Now, some of us in here, some of us in here are animal lovers. Some of us in here are dog lovers, Right? And we'd say, oh, man, wouldn't it be nice if you were laying out by the gate to have a dog come and, you know, just kind of dress up your wounds a little bit. And, and I, bet, I bet he just hugged the dog and they held on to each other and kept each other company. <laughs> what you just did is you took American way of thinking to the text, and that's a dangerous thing. In the Scripture, you have to go with the context of the culture of what's going on. You know how Jewish people view dogs? Like they did pigs. Unclean animals that you're not supposed to be handling. You tracking with me? Now, I know that's far and apart. Some of y'all are mad at them already. Uh, that cultural day is past, so just calm down. But you need to know it to understand the context of what Jesus is saying. So they derided dogs. If, if I said this about you, well, he was in a bad spot. That's one thing. But if I said he was in such a bad spot that the nasty, filthy, mangy dogs were coming and licking him, he didn't have the strength to shoo him away. That's something different. So the picture Jesus is painting is of someone who is not able to help themselves. They're in a terrible predicament. And we would agree we've seen two lives starkly contrasted. Somebody amen. Let's move on to number two. Number two in your notes, we said a stark contrast of life. Number two, there is, I want you to write this statement, then we're going to flesh it out. There is a measurement. Write that down for me. There is a measurement. How many of you, when you cook, you go by the measurements? Raise your hand. All right, how many of you don't go by the measurements? All right, how many of you ever made a mistake by not using the measurements? All right, yeah. And so, <laughs> measurements. Now, listen, something about a measurement you need to know. A measurement has a beginning, and a measurement has an ending. It's got to start somewhere. It's got to stop somewhere. Whether it's length, width, height, whether it's fluid, right? It has to start somewhere and end somewhere, okay? There is a measurement. You have two lives. And as Jesus is telling the story, in their earthly life, one has everything he could ever want and more. He can go anywhere, do anything. He can tour the country. He can go rent hotels. He can go skiing. He can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. The other guy can't even, well, he doesn't even have a meal to eat. Matter of fact, verse 21 says, uh, the man Lazarus desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his, his sores. Imagine, if you will, laying at this gate of a palace and in such a condition that you wished, and I'm gonna modernize it just a little bit, that waste management, when they left out, they would drop one sack of his trash so that you could eat the best meal you've ever eaten that was in his trash thrown away from his table. Now, I want you just to see how this thing continues to unfold. Verse number 22. So it was that, okay, read with me. So it was that the beggar did what? The beggar died. All right, skip down to the last sentence of that same phrase. The rich man also died. There's a measurement. There's a measurement. What are you talking about, preacher? I'm glad you asked. Uh, the Word of God in two particular places that I'm going to highlight. First of all, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 27. Write it in your notes. Hebrews 9, verse 27. What does it say? And as it is appointed for men, y'all help me, to die once. To die once. But after that, what happens when we die? I'll tell you. There's a judgment. But as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Some will be judged innocent and they'll walk into the kingdom of heaven. Some will be judged guilty and they will be ushered into the lake of fire. Uh, there's only two destinations. There's no in-between. Some would have you to believe that there's some soul annihilation, that your soul would go away for the bad people. You just stop existing. And that is not what Jesus is painting here as a picture of reality at all. You're going somewhere for the rest of time. 
Now, he's talking to this audience. Some are relying on themselves. They're rich. They love money. And there are some who are sinners who are desperate and beggarly and have no hope of being right with God. And so they're depending upon the grace and mercy of God in the Son, Jesus. Let me move on. Verse 22. So it was that the beggar died. Now, what happened when the beggar died? Now, remember, the beggar is representative of someone who has believed in Moses and the prophets. The rich man is representative of those who have not believed Moses and the prophets. Now, what on heavens, on earth does that mean? The Moses and the prophets were the Bible of Jesus' day. The Old Testament. The New Testament had not been recorded. Why? Because Jesus is the one who came to institute the New Testament, the New Covenant. It's being written. Y'all with me? So in the end of the parable, when Jesus said, hey, they, when he's quoting Abraham, and Abraham says, they have Abraham, I mean, they have Moses and the prophets. What's he saying? They have the Bible. They have the Bible, and they've not believed it, okay? So as we look at this, as we look at the, at the, at the, at the beggar, he has believed the Mo, Moses and the prophets. By the way, uh, remember, the word of God talks about Jesus preaching through Moses and the prophets, pointing to himself, why? You have enough in the Old Testament that points to the coming of the Messiah that those in the Old Testament look forward to God's provision as those of us in the New Testament look backwards to God's provision. Is anybody out there? What a wonderful truth that they look forward, we look backwards. So it was that the beggar died. Now, if we go on to think about how they died and what happened when the beggar died, I want you to imagine, if you would, the angels, when he drew his last breath here, most likely on the side of the road or at the gate, in agony, and the moment that he died, because listen to this, putting your hope and trust in Jesus doesn't mean that you're going to have a fat bank account. And so he died in poverty, but listen to me, friend. When he took his next breath, as a son of the Most High God, he entered into the wonderful kingdom of heaven, the likes of which all the riches here on earth pale in comparison to what's used as pavement. So he's carried by the angels. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what's going to be like when you, child of God, die and you're carried by the angels into the presence of God? So there was one man's story, all right? So let's look at the other. So it was that beggar died and was carried to the angels in Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, and there's something different here. Now, I need you to see. Their life was different, but also their death was different. The beggar died, but we hear no mention of a burial. You know why? Oh, because beggars of that day didn't give up. They weren't given a proper burial. Who would, who would incur the expense? They'd come by with somewhat of a wheelbarrow. They'd put the body into the wheelbarrow. They'd wheel it to a place in Jesus' day called, referred to as Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is where we get the New Testament word for hell. What was Gehenna? Gehenna was a place outside the city where they burned trash. You see the, you see the picture of hell? Except that literally, the lives of beggars, they'd be put in the wheelbarrow, they'd wheel there, no, no family gathering, no money spent on a casket, no celebration. They'd wheel his carcass to, the, to Gehenna, and they'd burn his body, and that'd be that. And if all you could see was what was going on on earth, you'd be sad, wouldn't you? Except what was really happening is in those moments, he's being carried by the angels into the presence of God. But the other guy, the rich guy, what you're seeing here on earth is that he died and was buried. Most likely a wonderful ceremony, you know, spared no expense. The nicest of caskets of their day, all the proper burial uh, embalming on the outside, you know, how they would treat and care for the body, uh, not embalmed from the inside, but, but the spices and all that was necessary for, for, uh, for curing the body. Oh, it was a wonderful display, and probably someone said about him, oh, today he rests in paradise. Because as my friend told me at the funeral home, he said, nobody ever passed through here, ever went to hell at least what was proclaimed at their burial. And it would have been said about this guy. So you have two different lifestyles. You have a measurement that came. It's appointed for men to die once, but after this is the judgment. The beggar died and the rich man died. Let me give you another verse along the lines of that before we move on. That is what you hear me reference oftentimes is one of my favorite verses, Psalm 39 and verse number four. Here's what it says. Lord, make me to know my end. Did you know that you have an end? Did you wake up today knowing that today might be your end? Did you get in your car today and head to church and say, this may be my last opportunity to worship with the people of God before I go home, and I'm going to live it? Or did you just sort of wake up and do today like you did yesterday? And if you're like me, most likely you got up today and did yet today like you did yesterday, thinking that you got tomorrow. And that's why the psalmist said, God, I need you to make me do something. I can't do it on my own. I'm always planning tomorrow, and I always think I'm going to be here tomorrow. 
But what I've learned over my lifetime is what he says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. I look around, and over my lifetime, I'll be 46, November 23rd, I've done over 1,000 funerals. Can you imagine that? And I've done funerals for kids. I've done funerals for teenagers. I've done funerals for 20-year-olds, 40, 50, 60, 70. Every age group, what I've learned in that is that there is, in fact, a measurement. And I look around this room, and I know that everybody here knows their beginning measurement, right? Like I look on the front road, and some of y'all's measurement ain't been that long ago, you know? And I look around, I see some of you more white-haired folk. Some of your hairs turn loose. And hey, your beginning day is a little further back. But what nobody in this room knows is when that ending measurement will come. And I've been fascinated in my life to see people that'll, man, they'll measure out the grams of protein and count their carbohydrates and they'll work out in the morning, work out in the evening, work out in the late afternoon. Oh, I'm telling you, they eat broccoli for breakfast, broccoli for brunch. I'm telling you, they count, and, and at 41, they die. I could give you 10 names of people died in that scenario. At 25, in the gym, just off of a yearly checkup, aneurysm, gone, just like that. And what I want to assure you today is something you probably don't think about a lot. You have a measurement. And you will not be early for that appointed time. Aren't you glad of that? Some of y'all, sometimes you think, well, if I do this, what's going to happen? Well, Jesus is not going to look at his watch and say, Todd, what are you doing here? You're two weeks early. (laughs) You're not going to be early. But at the same time, you're not going to be late. You're going to, it's an appointed time by the one who created everything that is. And when that time comes and your sand and your hourglass turns, you're out of here. And you'll see what happens next. Okay? Now, let's go ahead a little further. By the way, isn't this fun? I don't know about you guys, but man, I'm asking God to help me. Because you know what we do? We get trapped in the, we run our little, we're like a hamster in a wheel. We run, 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 we go to sleep, get up, run, 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 we get up, go to sleep. And one day, boom, we're gone. And never having given the thought that we should to eternity. Because listen to me, look at me. It never ends. It never ends. Okay, let me move on. So first, we've seen the stark contrast of life. Second, we saw there is a measurement. Third, we're going to talk about a few details about hell for just a minute. So strap in, take a deep breath. This won't be the easiest thing you've heard in a while, but that's okay. It's necessary. Okay, here we go. Number three in your, in your outline here, right? In hell, mercy is no longer an option. Write that somewhere. In hell, mercy is no longer an option. Now, do you know what mercy is? Anybody in the room know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. That means that if I disobeyed my parent and I deserve punishment, not getting the punishment is mercy. Grace, on the other hand, is getting what I don't deserve. So maybe instead of punishment, I get a new car. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I do not deserve. Does that make sense? Okay. So, watch what happens here in the text, all right? Pick it with me, and I left off there in verse 23 to 25. So, what happens next? Verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, the rich man, and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, maybe you're asking yourself a question right now. Hey, if I go to heaven, am I going to be able to see into hell? And hey, if somebody's in hell, will they be able to see into heaven? You ever thought that? You ever questioned that? Here's my answer. You ready? I don't know. Now, let me just look at you. Some of you are like, why did we go to Hickory Ridge? He said he didn't know. That's right. I don't know. There's not enough scripture, perfect text to tell us yes or no. So he said, well, he just said it right there. This is a parable. This is a parable. Some of the wordings here is just for the purpose of making a point to his audience. For instance, Abraham's bosom. That was a phrase the rabbis taught, especially in pharisaical circles, that they thought Abraham's bosom was a representation of heaven. Y'all tracking with me? May not have known that, but now you know. And so, understand, so somebody asked, well, how, how are the parts you take out of here that you're able to preach, the parts that are repeated again? I, I'm going to show you. Watch this, okay? So in hell, there is no more opportunity for mercy. Listen to what he says. And being in torments in verse 23 in Hades, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. These details are necessary for Jesus' teaching point to these people in his audience. Verse 24, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, and by the way, I told you it's not about wealth because Abraham is one of the wealthiest men that ever lived and where is he? He's in heaven. You see? Don't miss that. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have, what do you want? Mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. 
You see, for some people, they'll never understand that they deserved eternal punishment until they find themselves there. At which time, it'll be too late. Listen to what he says in verse 23, being in torments. Verse 24, then he, look at the word that's used there. Then he cried. Why, why, can you, why can you preach this right now? Because you know, more than five different occasions, Jesus says this phrase, and there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. So one thing we know for certain, not just in the parable, but about hell itself, is there's a lot of crying going on, which we all love to do. We love to cry. We all wish we could cry from sunup to sundown, right? But an eternity of crying. And I want you to think about this man's tears. It's not, listen, this is not the Greek word for misty-eyed. You know how us men do when something touches us, you know, and we say, oh, it's my allergies, you know. Y'all know what I'm talking about? This isn't that word. This is the word of, you know the kind of crying when you can't catch your breath? This is the kind of crying that when he looks out over his life and he thinks about all the good opportunities he had and all the high-minded thinking, maybe, he, maybe in his mind said, there's no such thing as hell, and I'm not going to believe in that. I don't care what the Bible says. And he had all these high-minded ideas about what would make him right with God. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. And in that, he's realized in all of God's gracious offers and a life full of mercy, not getting what he deserved, he now has found himself in a place where he cannot undo it. Talk about a broken heart. Talk about the horror and the misery of a person realizing that the mercy you experienced even when you were on earth can no longer be experienced ever again. I had a man tell me a number of years ago, I know that I'm saved. I said, man, that's awesome. Tell me how you know. He said, because God's been good to me. He said, God's taken care of me, and God's done this, and God's done that. And I said, you realize the Scripture says, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. You see, in this life, God offers all of us mercy and grace. And the statement would be made that God's mercy is infinite. Do you agree or disagree? I love the pause. Well, what, what, well let, me, let me think, let me think. Yes, it's infinite, but it has boundaries. And so he had experienced a life of mercy until he died when he had rejected Moses and the prophets that promised there was a Messiah, specifically Isaiah, whose suffering for our inequities would heal the sickness of our soul and we could be born again and we could know God and be right with God. And he'd rejected all of that and just held on to his life and his way and his mercy. See, the scripture says this way, if you hold on to your life for your sake, you're going to lose it. And he's weeping, he's sobbing. And there's no more chances. It's too late. Listen to me, friend, it's too late. God's, God's mercy is infinite, but it is, has boundaries. And oh, this man has tested the boundaries. And, and now the woes have come. You see, in Matthew chapter 6, we have the woes that say, woe to you who are rich. In verse 24 of chapter 6, you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall now hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall now mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. What's he saying? If you trust in you and do it your way, woe to you. So we would say to you today, I would invite you with this question. And by the way, let me just say that people tell me all the time, man, you, you're, you, your life must be so grand and easy. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, man, your church is growing and it's always growing and this and that and I said, you do realize that the motivation factor of my joy is not how many people come to church on Sunday. It is the fact that I've been born again and that I have the good news to share with whosoever will hear to either be born again or to be encouraged in their walk with Christ. But here's the part that sometimes causes me to lay awake at night. Sometimes causes me to shudder. I think about the fact that many of you, probably in this room right now, are listening to a message that, first of all, makes you uncomfortable. You don't like that, so you're already disregarding it. You're thumbing your nose up like the Pharisee. And the truth of the matter is, you'll probably again today reject surrendering your life to Jesus and, and quite possibly until your time is up, your measurement's done. And what haunts me often is that we've had small talk with each other and we've smiled and I've prayed for you and and I've begged you, and I've stood on the platform and proclaimed the good news, and you've come in and really thought you had it because, like, you go to church, and yet you're going to find yourself sometime in the future, and it's going to be too late to give your life to Christ. 
And it's almost too much for me to bear to think about one of you guys, one of you, in a lake of fire forever, separated from the goodness and grace and mercy and love of God. So no, I'm not always happy. I'm not always just jumping off of the, of the ceiling because oftentimes I think about how many of you will leave out of here, out of the sidewalk, get in your vehicle, and leave in the same lost condition that you were in when you came. And it would mean more to my heart and my soul that if one of you would repent and turn to Jesus and this room would only have you in and every other seat would be empty. Because I believe with all my heart, eternity is a very long time and God is a very gracious and loving God, but he won't force your hand. So let me just go on to say if I could, you might would say, uh, why would you say things like this to scare us? Why would, you, why would you preach on hell? You know, I had somebody stop me earlier and say, it's like, that was a hellfire and brimstone. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Someone would say to me at some point, you know, we ought, to, we ought to just be gracious and kind and not really talk about the tough things to which I would answer scripturally. So let me do that. If you will look on the overhead, you're gonna see some verses that pop up I wanna just share with you. If you're wondering why today I'm preaching all of God's word and not just the easy parts, all right, so here they are, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Will you look with me? Read, just read it. It's on the overhead. You can jot the notation down, but read it with me. And this is Paul talking to the believers at, at, at Corinth. Here's what he says. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's appointed for man once to die, and then comes the judgment. He says that each may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Is he saying works are the way? No, he's saying your life will prove what you believe. Is anybody with me? You may say you prayed a prayer. You may say you've been born again, but if your life has no evidence, you're not. So he says, that's what, and so next sentence, listen with me. Knowing therefore, y'all reading with me? Help me. The terror of the Lord. Paul said, motivated by the terror of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade, man, I'm up here on the platform persuading you with all that I am. I've prayed all that I can pray this week. It's come to this moment, and I stand on the platform on his behalf, and I strive to persuade you based on the terror of the Lord that you'd not thumb your nose up, that you'd not try to form your system of beliefs based on what feels right to you, but that you'd humble yourself and under the mighty hand of God, and he'll save you. Redeem your life like he has mine. Let me give you another place in the scripture in case you're wondering why I would preach such a text. Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 28. Listen to this. This is Jesus' words speaking here about life. He says, do not fear those who kill the body. And that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Somebody threatens to kill you, there's usually a little fear involved. But he said, don't, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. On the contrast, on the contrary, on the contrast. But rather fear, not those, but there's only one, him, who is able to destroy both soul and body, huh, in hell. So then, by the terror of the Lord, today I came to persuade you that Jesus is the only way home and that God loves you so very much that he gave his only son so that you can be saved and truly be born again and a child of the living God. Now, let me just move on. I got a couple more things I'd like to share with you from the text. Look back at verse number 26. Somebody said, man, we've already had the full meal deal. Just hang on, throw a little dessert on top, all right? Sort of like the buffet this morning, okay? Verse number 26, here we go. Write this down in your notes. This is number four, okay? In hell, there is no help of, hope of escape. So there's, so there's no mercy, but there's also no hope of escape. Where do you see that? Verse number 26, would you read with me? And besides all of this, between us, this is Abraham, remember, talking to the rich man who's in torment, who's weeping, who just wants a little touch of water on his tongue to soothe some of the pain. <clears throat> and, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. Fixed meaning someone in authority put it in place and it can't be undone. You know who that somebody is? God. And so there's no way out. And by the way, that means there's no way out of heaven. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. But there's also no way out of hell. There's no escape. Jesus said in John 11, 25 and 26, listen to this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he's talking to Mary and Martha. Remember when, when their brother Lazarus has died? Interesting, huh? Though he may die, Jesus said, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now that word for die means be separated from God forever. And where would that be? In the lake of fire. He said, if he believes in me, 
He shall never taste that fire. He'll never be in that place. And then he asks a question. Do you see it? The question is, do y'all believe this? Huh? No, it doesn't say that. It says, do you believe this? Now listen, I need to pose a question to you. Salvation is an individual thing. Your parents can't purchase it for you. Your grandparent can't. Doesn't matter if they built the church or they built the podium or the pulpit or the remembrance table. Doesn't matter how many times they were in attendance. Doesn't matter if mom and dad was. Doesn't matter if you've been in church since your mom was pregnant with you and you've never missed a day in. If you've not invited Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, you're on the outside looking in. He asked the question, do you believe this? So the question is, do you believe that Jesus is the only way home to the Father? You need to answer that before you leave today. Let me move on if I can, all right? Next, I want you to see in hell. Now, we're just talking about a couple things we see in hell. Verse 27 and 28, in hell there is an evangelistic urgency. Now, now this is interesting to me. In hell now, in hell, he's asking now in these verses for, for Lazarus to do what? Go back to home. Go back to my house. Talk to my brothers. You know, if, if, if somebody doesn't go tell them, they're going to end up right here where I am. And so there was all of a sudden, all his life he was with his brothers, never, had, never pointed them to Jesus through Moses and the prophets. They just did life together. Maybe had businesses together. Maybe made money together. I don't know what they did together, but I know this. He never once invited them to know Jesus because he didn't know Jesus. But now that he's in hell, he's wanting them to know Jesus. I bet you will. And so he says, would you just send, and so I, I oftentimes think about, oftentimes there's more urgency of evangelism in hell than there is in the homes of some professing believers. Man, there ought to be a deep-seated desire, urgency for me to tell the good news to every person I meet. Why? Because God doesn't want them to go there, and I shouldn't either. And I ought to be considering that as I go about life. And so he asked the question, you know, would you send them? Would you send them? Would you please send them in verse 27 and 28? I beg you, oh, isn't it interesting that there's been a, a major shift the man who had it all has now become the beggar. And he's begging somebody to go tell his family. Send somebody from the dead. Can you imagine somebody bust that door open right now? Boom, back door swing open. Guy comes in, you know, horror on his face, smelling like burnt sulfur. Screaming and wailing from where he's been. Begging everybody not to. I don't know about you, I, in my estimation, I'd be prone to believe what he had to say. That's not what the Word of God says. So in hell, there's an evangelistic urgency. But what I want to close with today is found in verse 29 to 31. Here it is. The Word of God is powerful to salvation. This is the good news. See, you have to know the bad news before you know the good news. 29 to 31, listen to, what it, listen to the answer. Abraham says to this proposition, what is it? Send somebody from the dead. If my brothers smell somebody from here, if my brothers see somebody from here that have been disfigured in death, if they hear the words of someone in agony crying out for them to change, surely they'll change. And here was Abraham's answer. Ready? Jesus telling the story to the people. He says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. If we were to shorten that up, he would say they have the Bible. They have the Bible. They have the word of God. That's all they'll ever need. Listen to what he says. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but, it, but certainly if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll, they'll repent, they'll turn, they'll see the urgency. And he said to them, if they do not hear the Bible, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. My precious friend, if you will not believe the word of God, you shall not be saved. If you'll not believe the word of God, listen to me, Nothing shall persuade you to trust in Jesus if the word of God will not. He said the word's enough. Where do you get that from? Let me give you a couple of places in the scripture that agree with this particular statement. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Somebody said, boy, we've covered a lot of scripture today. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. It all agrees. 2 Timothy 3 and 15, Paul says this to young Timothy, and that from childhood. He's encouraging him in the scriptures. Listen to what he says. You have known the holy scriptures, which are able, hang on, this is going to blow your mind. The Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, which are able to make you wise for salvation. How would a person ever know they need to be saved unless the Word of God tells them they're lost without Him? How would a human being, how would a human soul ever know that there was a Savior that came to rescue them unless the Word of God tells them? How could the human soul ever believe that they're not right 
in our goodness in all of our ways unless the word of God says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. It's the word of God that has the power. Let me give you another place. One more and I'm going to move on. Romans 1.16 where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Where? Recorded in its word. For it's the power of God to salvation for anyone, y'all help me, who believes. So what is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. The gospel is found in many different pages. I've got a couple of verses I'm going to mention. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life found in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news, my friend. Sin earns a wage, separation from God. Jesus, as a free gift, we don't have to earn him. We can't. We can't buy him. Came and now offers us, everybody who will call his name, eternal life, forgiveness, and a full pardon. Oh, I want to give you a couple of more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 and 4, Paul said, I delivered to you what I already received. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried in the grave, and that he arose again the third day, according to the Word of God. What else does the Word say? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's good news. And finally, John chapter 3 and verse number... Anybody, anybody? 16, which says, for God so loved. He didn't just slightly love. He just didn't kind of love. He so loved the world. That, he didn't sit back because we couldn't help ourselves, but he so loved that he did something. He gave. What did he give? As he looked across the spans of heaven, did he give gold and silver? Did he give lands and nations and creation? No, he gave his only begotten son. That, what group of people? Whosoever, anyone, man, woman, boy, or girl, from the lightest to the darkest, no matter where they've been or what they've done, if they would believe in him, they should not perish in a lake of fire and torment and agony and weeping, but instead in Christ receive everlasting life. My question for you is how do you fit in the story? Your life exposes what you believe. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus? Now, what I want to do is invite you to bow your head with me for just a moment, okay? And as you bow your head for just a moment, I want you to consider that measurement for just a moment. That measurement. Really quickly, everybody listening, please don't swing those back doors open and shut like the screen door on the front porch. Let's, if we can, at all costs, try and stay in our seat unless we just are in emergency and we have to go. Someone's eternity hangs in the balance. We had three or four raise their hand for salvation this very morning in our early worship time. I want you to imagine for a moment that measurement, okay? Now, do you know the beginning measurement? If you know the beginning of your measurement, I just want you to raise your hand. Okay, I'm going to wait a second. Some of y'all might need to get your driver's license out. All right, one more time. If you're in here and you know the beginning measurement of your life, you know your birthday, I want you to raise your hand up just as straight as you can up in the air, okay? All right, so most of us know when that day is. Okay, thank you. You can put your hand down. Now then, if you know the day you're going to die, the end measurement, why don't you raise your hand? Interestingly enough, not a hand in the place. You know why? Because only God knows that measurement. It's, it's appointed, and there's nothing you can do to escape it. It's coming. But precious friend, you don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to be anxious about it. Matter of fact, if you trust in the death and resurrection of King Jesus in such a way that you'd invite him to come into your life and be Lord, you know he'll save you? He'll save you. Listen, some of y'all thinking, well, I got some things in my life I got to get fixed. I got to, you know, I got to think about it some more. I got to, I got to change this. I got to change that. First of all, time's running out. The sand in your hourglass is running thin. But not only that, listen to me. You can't, fit, you can't get clean before you get in the shower. You've got to get in the shower to get clean. You've got to come to Jesus to find the strength to walk away from some of the things you need to walk away from. You've got to come to Jesus to want to walk to some of the things you need to walk to. So with heads bowed and eyes, because I wonder if there's a brother or sister in the house that come to the altar this morning and just began to pray for lost souls. Anybody burdened enough in your chair that you'd get up in that comfortable spot and come down this altar? I'm going to wait for you.
I love it when the family of God comes to the altar and just prays for lost souls. Nothing sweeter. People from all over the room. I saw people on the back row back there coming, getting out of their row, bumping people over and coming down this altar and just began to pray for lost souls. Would y'all, <clears throat> would y'all pray this with me? Pray the Spirit of God would take the blinders off of blinded eyes. I pray this with me specifically, that God would bind the enemy, the strong man, so that the Holy Spirit would plunder his goods, meaning this, that he would rescue lost souls. Would you pray right now that people would lay their pride down <clears throat> and that today, maybe for the first time, they would invite Jesus to come and be the Lord of their life and be saved and forgiven and born again, given purpose. Just pray with me. Pray hard. Pray with all your might. Now, as they're praying and heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just want to ask the question of the group. Nobody's looking around. Is there anybody out in the congregation today that says, you know what, I know today I need to be saved. I believe with all my heart the Spirit's drawing me. Would you slip your hand up? I'm not going to come find you. I'm not going to ask you to come down to the altar. I just want to know how to pray. I see you there. Anybody else, just slip your hand up. I see you there. Any other, just right now, just slip your hand right up and you can slip it right back down. I just believe today I need to be saved. Or maybe it is that you're wrestling with that. You can't say for certain it's ever happened for you. Or maybe it is that today you say, my life has never looked like that. You know, I said a prayer sometime, but nothing ever changed. I want to persuade you today to turn your life over to Jesus. In my life, I've never heard one soul ever say, you know, I really regret giving my life to Jesus and following him. Never, not one time. But there have been countless occurrences where I've talked with people on their bedside that said, you know what, I wish I would have surrendered to him sooner. Where are you at today? Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would save, God, that you would move, that you would heal, that you would draw people out of that far country, that you would help us to see right now that our only hope is Jesus. Lord, that today's message is not one of anger, but one of anguish, that you desire souls to be saved and rescued, not punished and separated. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, people would respond now as your spirit moves. We ask it that you would move now according to your perfect plan. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.